These last few weeks, I've been pretty much absorbed in finishing a book, and it'll be out at the end of March. The title of it is Our Sufficiency in Christ. It's going to be a controversial book. It's going to be a book that uh, I don't know why I always wind up writing those kinds of books, but uh, my wife says, why don't you write something just plain, just plain, that makes people love you, and uh, stop picking fights. But um, it's going to be, I think, a fairly provocative book, and it talks about our sufficiency in Christ. And I, I want to speak to you this morning, and I don't have a lot of time because I have to catch an airplane and, uh, and go minister in the Midwest in, in Chicago and Indiana for the next ten days or so. Uh, but I do want to share some of the things that just sort of are the substance of what I've been thinking in that book. It has a lot of things, and I hope all of you will have the opportunity to buy it and read it because I, I, think, um, I think it tackles the major issue facing us today, and that is do we really believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient for all of our spiritual life? Or do we believe that somehow we're shortchanged and we have to add something else to Christ? That's pretty much what's going on in our culture. As I was preparing to write the book, I came across some interesting things found an old newspaper clipping that was pretty fascinating. It came out of New York City. This is what it says. Homer and Langley Collier were sons of a respected New York doctor. Both had earned college degrees. In fact, Homer had studied at Columbia University to become an attorney. So when old Dr. Collier died in the early part of this century, his sons inherited the family home and large estate. The two men... Both bachelors were financially secure. But the Collier brothers chose a peculiar lifestyle, not at all consistent with the material status their inheritance gave them. They lived in almost total seclusion. They boarded up the windows of their house and padlocked all the doors. All their utilities, including water, were shut off. They lived in this massive estate, but no one ever saw them coming or going from the house. From the outside, it appeared empty. Though the Collier family had been quite prominent, almost no one in New York society remembered Homer and Langley Collier by the time World War II ended. On March 21, 1947, police received an anonymous telephone tip that a man had died inside the boarded-up house. Unable to force their way in through the front door, they entered the house through a second-story window. Inside, they found Homer Collier's corpse on a bed. He had died clutching the February 22, 1920 issue of the Jewish Morning Journal, though he had been totally blind for years. This macabre scene was set against an equally grotesque backdrop. It seems the brothers were collectors. Apparently, they had gone out in the middle of the night, night after night, and collected everything, especially junk. Their house was crammed full of broken machinery, auto parts, boxes, appliances, folding chairs, musical instruments, rags, assorted odds and ends, and bundles of old newspapers. Virtually all of it was worthless. An enormous mountain of debris blocked the front door. Investigators were forced to continue using the upstairs window for weeks while excavators worked to clear a path to the door. Nearly three weeks later, as workmen were still hauling heaps of refuse away, someone made a grisly discovery. Langley Collier's body was buried beneath a pile of rubbish six feet away from where Homer had died. 
Langley had been crushed to death in a crude booby trap he had built to protect his precious junk from intruders. The garbage eventually removed from the Collier house totaled more than 140 tons. No one ever learned why the brothers were stockpiling their pathetic treasure. Except an old friend of the family recalled that Langley once said he was saving newspapers so Homer could catch up on his reading if he ever regained his sight. (laughs) Homer and Langley Collier, in my judgment, make a sad but fitting parable of the way many people who call themselves Christians live. Although the Collier's inheritance was sufficient to meet all their needs, they lived in unnecessary and self-imposed deprivation. And neglecting the abundant resources that were really theirs to enjoy, they instead turned their home into a squalid dump, kind of spurning the legacy their father gave them. They binged on trash. And it does seem to me that Christians collect a lot of trash and somehow ignore the bountiful riches of what is theirs in Christ. I want to be very simple and very direct this morning in just a brief few moments and share with you that the most important thing in your life is your relationship to Jesus Christ. Assuming that you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and that you can get caught up in a lot of junk collecting, even as a Christian, amassing a whole lot of useless stuff, at some point in time it's important to kind of cut through that and get back to the real relationship. In the book, I deal with three issues that have cluttered up the Christian's lives with junk One is psychology, two is pragmatism, and three is mysticism. We have in the church today an amazing kind of fascination with human wisdom, and particularly in the area of psychotherapy. We also have an amazing fascination with pragmatism, which means I'm not so concerned about my doctrine, even as a Christian, but I am concerned about what works. So that ministry, instead of being built on the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, tends to be built on technique and methodology and gimmickry. And then we have a kind of a major preoccupation with mysticism, which is a whole lot of sort of personal, spiritual highs and lows, deeper life, higher life, wider life, broader life kind of stuff. And lots of experiences, supernatural, esoteric, visions, revelations, gurus, and whatever else. Those are all elements of mysticism. Frankly, collecting all that stuff is is just like Homer and Langley. It, It sort of amasses needless junk that clutters up your life and takes away the simplicity that is in Christ. And I just want to, this morning, put you back in touch with that. So open your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. And I want just to refer again to the person of Christ and his sufficiency and give you a little bit of a of a taste of of what the book is really all about in colossians chapter 2 paul writing to the colossian church is confronting a a lot of cultural baggage 
it was very apparent that the Colossians were being inundated with some people who said Christ was not enough. You needed to collect some other trash to make your life meaningful. The inheritance you had in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ was not sufficient. And so there were some there who... Um, who were really called the knowing ones, the ones who were in the know, the ones with the secret knowledge. The old word for them is Gnostics, which is from the Greek word gnosis, to know. And uh, these were the ones who knew the secret things, who supposedly knew what else you needed beside Christ in order to elevate yourself to a higher spiritual level. Some of these Colossian heretics were claiming that Christ alone could not lift you to the place you needed to be. Christ alone could not give you what was sufficient in your life. Christ alone could not provide for you all of the resources necessary for victory in this world. Christ alone could not bring you complete joy. Christ alone could not elevate you to the point where you understood true wisdom. There had to be some some other things added to Christ. And so Paul writes the second chapter of Colossians to basically try to tear that argument apart. And starting in verse 3, mentioning at the end of verse 2 the name of Christ, he then in verse 3 says, "...of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now there is a major statement about Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need to know and everything you need to experience and all wisdom necessary to life and godliness and spirituality and victory, all effective wisdom that is effective in terms of service and ministry is in Christ. In Him is all wisdom and knowledge hidden. Now down in verse 9 we read also, For in Him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Christ is all wisdom and knowledge, because in Christ is all deity. He is God, and in God is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, there is absolute, total, complete sufficiency in Christ. Everything we need to know, everything we need to be, all power we need to effectively serve God is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. All of it. And to deny that is to deny the straightforward statement of the Word of God and also to deny the sufficiency of the character of Christ and the nature of God. In chapter 3 of Colossians, and verse 4, it says, Christ, who is our life. He is our life. He is the source of all our spiritual existence, of all our spiritual life. And so the Apostle Paul is very clear in verse 10 of chapter 2 to say this, In Him... You have been made, what? Complete. Complete. A Christian is a self-contained individual. In the sense that you have in having Christ everything you need. It's nice to have Christian friends, and they bring a great ministry to us. Nice to have pastors and teachers and leaders and elders and deacons. And it's nice to have godly parents and brothers and sisters. It's, it's nice to have those to whom we can go for spiritual counsel and wisdom and input. It's nice to have all of that. It's not absolutely necessary. They can encourage us. They can help us. They can instruct us. But the end of all their encouragement, all their help, and all their instruction is to connect us up with our resources in Christ, right? 
Sooner or later, the best that I can do as a pastor, the best that I can do as a counselor, the best that I can do as a friend or a father or a brother or a husband or whatever, the best that I can do for someone who has spiritual need is put that person in touch with their spiritual resources in Christ, right? Because it's all in Him. All of it. And so we say then, at the very substance level of Christian living, is the issue of what is my relationship to Jesus Christ like? We have people who have a very, very inadequate, weak, unfulfilling relationship to Christ by their own design, who then reach out into the trash pile to try to solve their problems when the truth of the matter is they need to strengthen the relationship with Christ which is lacking. Now let's look at chapter 2 for a moment and and let me kind of show you what Paul says about this matter. Back in verse 8, we we pick it up and he has already said in verse 6, you've received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. That's where your life is, verse 6. That's that's how you live your life. Uh, You've already been rooted and are now being built up in Him, established in your faith. So it's in Christ that you have your life. Keep walking in Him. Then in verse 8, he points out a problem. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Stop at that point. There are some people who will come along and say, you need Christ plus philosophy. What is philosophy? Well, it's very simple. Two Greek words, philia, saphos. Philia means to have an affection for or love for. Saphos means wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. And in this case, he's talking about human wisdom. And he is saying, don't let anybody take you captive. Literally, the word means to abduct you. Human wisdom, now mark this, and human philosophy is a predator. It seeks you as prey. It seeks to enslave the Christian in what? In empty deception. In empty deception. The world comes along and it offers all of its strategies and all of its wisdoms and all of its theories and all of its therapies and all of that stuff. And it offers it as if it is wisdom. And its intent is that of a predator to come and take captive the Christian to enslave him in something that is absolutely bankrupt, absolutely empty, absolutely deceiving. In fact, go on in verse 8, this wisdom of the world is according to the tradition of men. It is according to the tradition of men. What does that mean? What is tradition? Something that was what? Handed down from generation to generation. It is human speculation. It is human theory passed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. That's the best the world can offer you. That's the best it has, is its own endless speculation. When I was in college, I was a student of philosophy, and I, I took advanced courses in philosophy, philosophy of Western thought, European philosophy. In fact, in several of my philosophy classes, there weren't more than three or four students because of the nature of the advanced philosophy courses. And it was a great curiosity to me to study the history of Western philosophy. 
to find out that it's just this long line of people who accumulate stuff based on past people, and all of it is this very simplistic tradition of passing on human wisdom that gets refined a little and refined a little and refined a little and refined a little, and it's all this endless search for some kind of truth. Philosophy never finds the truth. You go to a philosophy class in any university, and you, they will never they will never say this is the truth. You see, in philosophy, you can't find the truth because if you find the truth, the class is over. It's, it's done. End of course. So I took Western philosophy, and what I learned basically out of the history of Western thought and philosophy is that it is an accumulation of human speculation. It's simply an accumulation of human speculation. That's all. It just keeps moving down through history. It has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with divine revelation. It is utterly humanistic. And it shows up most predominantly in our age today in psychology. Psychology is the dominant philosophy. Psychology, contemporary secular psychology, is based upon the fact there is no God, one. Man has the capability to fix himself, two. And if you give him the right therapy, he can do it, three. And none of those are true. There is a God. Man can fix himself, and no external behavior modification can change his heart. But we have a world of accumulated philosophy. Now, notice how God evaluates this. It's kind of interesting. He says that... Don't let any philosophy take you captive and bring about its empty deception. According to the tradition of men, listen to this, according to the elementary principles of the world. What's that? Well, the elementary principles literally in the Greek means things in a row or things in a column or things in a line. What does that mean? It means like, are you ready for this? One, two, three, four, five. A, B, C, D, E. That's what it means. You say, well, what's its intent here? He is saying, here comes all this accumulated human tradition and speculation passed down generation after generation and after generation. And you know what it is? It's one, two, three, four, five, A, B, C, D, E, and nothing any more sophisticated than that. It's utterly infantile. It's utterly infantile. It isn't an advancement. It's a regression. It isn't university level. It's kindergarten. Nursery school. Gaga. That's all it is. It's nothing. Childish. Unrefined. Immature. Why would you abandon Christ? He says at the end of verse 8, rather than according to Christ, why would you abandon Christ as being all-sufficient and opt out for human wisdom, human philosophy, which is nothing but... ABC 123, human wisdom adds nothing to Christ, absolutely nothing to Christ. And so he says in verses 9 and 10, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. The point is there that Christ is sufficient, and we do not need philosophy. We do not need that. Now, I, I believe that, and you listen carefully to this, I believe that there are certain techniques of behavior modification that can modify behavior, but that is not sanctification. That is not sanctification. That is not transformation. That is not spiritual growth. 
I don't have any problem with an alcoholic going to a clinic to get off alcohol. I don't have any problem with a person who is drug dependent getting into some kind of program that helps them deal with that drug dependency. I don't have a problem with someone getting help for the trauma of incest rape or massive abuse and going to get some kind of, some kind of treatment for, uh, or some kind of care for the emotional trauma and horror that they're undergoing. But don't ever confuse that with sanctification. Because that cannot accomplish sanctification. And what is tragic today is, when psychology makes an influx into the church, it blurs the line between behavior modification and sanctification. Sanctification is the work of the living Christ in the believer. And ultimately, listen to this, a sanctified believer has his behavior modified. But a person who has his behavior modified externally may not be sanctified. Everything we need for spiritual sanctification and development and growth is found in our relationship to Jesus Christ. And the good counselor, the faithful counselor, and God bless the ones who do that, are the ones who use their capability, their skill, their wisdom, and their knowledge, and their spiritual direction by the Spirit of God to lead a believer to Christ's resources. Not Christ plus philosophy. Now, somebody else obviously come along in the church. According to verse 16, and added another possibility. Christ was not enough. You have to have something else. Are you ready for this? Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's another thing that people love to add to Christ. You know what it is? Legalism. Rules. Some of you have come out of a background like that. Where Christianity was basically defined by a system of external rules. And very, very external ones. There were certain things that you could do and certain things you couldn't do. Certain clothes you can wear, certain clothes you're not able to wear. A uh, certain way you can do your hair, a certain way you can't. Uh, some of you have come out of situations where there's certain makeup allowed, and, and I know some movements where they allow everything but lipstick. <laughs> Bizarre. Somebody said you don't have to be a farmer to know every barn needs to be painted now and then. I don't mean that in a negative way. But there are, there are a lot of people who think that when you're saved, that when you're saved and you come to know Christ, you, you know, you get salvation. But the way you get sanctification is by having a lot of rules. And you keep all these rules, all these external rules, and they make you spiritual. Christ plus legalism. External rules. And I'll tell you, I, I had experience in that environment. More experience there than I care to talk about. Never in my life as a Christian did I have more battles with the flesh and more carnality than when I was endeavoring to live under a legalistic system. I was empty on the inside. I didn't have any kind of dynamic in my relationship to Christ. And I was trying to keep all the rules that everybody was pose, imposing on me on the outside. And I was dirty on the inside, believe me. 
Legalism cannot restrain the flesh. That's why these people who advocate legalism so often fall into gross sin because they can't control the flesh. Jesus said in Mark 7.15, it's not what goes into the man that defiles him, it's what? It's what comes out of him. It's what comes out of him. It's what's in his heart. The kingdom of God is not food and drink. Romans 14.17, it's righteousness and joy, peace in the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit-controlled life. And keeping external rules doesn't sanctify you. It isn't Christ plus the outside rules. It's Christ dominating the inside. And that controls my outside behavior. And then there's a third group that obviously popped up in Colossae, and they had another issue. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. In other words, saying you're not really a fulfilled Christian. You're not going to get a a big reward. Uh, you're, You're not as far along as you ought to be. You haven't reached the apex of spirituality yet. By delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Now look at verse 19. Who is the head? Christ. From him the whole body is supplied, held together, grows from Christ. So don't let somebody come along who doesn't hold to the sufficiency of Christ and tell you that if you really want to get the spiritual prize, then you have to find yourself worshiping angels, having visions. Here we go. Christ plus mysticism. The first one was Christ plus philosophy. The second, Christ plus legalism. And now we're told Christ isn't enough. You've got to have something else. When I originally wrote the book on the charismatic movement back in the 70s, I titled it originally, The Quest for Something More. Because it seemed to me that people who were caught up in the charismatic movement, for the most part, were tacitly denying the sufficiency of Christ. And they were saying, yes, I have Christ, but there's so much more. I, I, you know, I have these angels, and I, ha- I have these visions, and I have these great experiences. And while they talk about the Holy Spirit all the time, they really deny the Holy Spirit His function and His work, which is the quiet, consistent, internal sanctification of the believer through the ministry of the Word. And they turn the Holy Spirit into some kind of a sensationalist circus clown who's creating all kinds of wild, frenetic, and frantic experiences. There are those people who will come along. I've had people say to me uh, a very interesting thing. Uh, this, this is often said to me. Well, you know, we, we appreciate your ministry. Too bad you don't have the Holy Spirit. Too bad you're, you're having to do it without the Holy Spirit. In fact, one time I was invited. It was a strange thing. I, I spoke at a charismatic church, a well-known charismatic church, dedicated a building there and spoke on the Word of God and Somebody got the idea that I had, because I spoke there, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they passed this information on to the man who directed the full gospel businessmen's committee in Southern California, which is a large charismatic organization. And so somebody at the head of that organization thought that I had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is just a few years ago. And thinking that, they wanted me to become their guest speaker so I could tell about my experience. So they invited me to the Southern California luncheon to talk about my experience in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and tongues. Now, when I got the letter and they asked me to speak on the baptism of the Spirit and tongues, I thought they wanted me to come and speak and give my view. 
true. The biblical view. But I didn't know this guy had thought I had the gift. So I thought, this is a very magnanimous invitation. I'm going to accept it. And I'm going to go and I'm going to tell him exactly what I think about all that. And out of the scripture, this was unbelievable. This was over in Glendale at a very huge place where we were having lunch. And I went in and sat there and they were very nice to me. And I, I was expecting that they wanted to hear the full treatment of the other side. So I got up. When it came time to speak and thank them for the wonderful invitation and just launched into my message. Well, I noticed there was a tremendous amount of motion all over the place as I got deeper and deeper into what I was saying. And then I could see people fidgeting and then I could hear the people who were at the, the, the head table talking. And when I was making about my fifth point on why tongues are not for today... The guy who was the host, this is true, Jay Letty was with me, you can ask him about it. The guy reached over and grabbed my coat and pulled me down into a chair. And then that's the first time I've ever been literally pulled down into a chair while I was speaking. And I said, but, but I'm not finished. Or something like that. And he said, yes, you are. And he got up and he said, now, brethren, uh, that we have a misunderstanding here. And I, I you know, I, I, I didn't think it was any misunderstanding. I knew exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> and then he said, you know, we, we want to show love to our brother. And so we want to all go to prayer. Let's, let's go to prayer. And so he prayed. And his prayer was, and I'll never forget it. He prayed, Lord, we just pray that this, this, This poor man will someday, in the middle of the night, this was what he said, in the middle of the night, feel the zap of the Holy Ghost. (laughs) That's about three years ago, and I haven't felt it yet. And he went on praying and praying that I would get zapped so that I could come to another level of spirituality. Christ plus what? Christ plus nothing. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and you are complete in Him. And do not let anybody intimidate you into thinking that there's something out there that you don't have because you just have Christ. And then there's a last one here. As if that's not enough, there's another group that showed up in Colossae. These poor people. Verse 20, he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles, the one, two, threes, and the ABCs of simplistic human philosophy, why, if you've died to that and you have everything in Christ, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch? So what is that? That's called asceticism. Asceticism. I remember meeting a Catholic priest one time who for years had worn his shoes full of rocks and who had under his cloak a belt with needles in it just to scratch him all the time. And the rocks were just to make him miserable all the time. This was self-deprivation, self-immolation, self-mutilation of some sort, or a rather minor sort, not exactly like cutting off your hand or something, but just a constant irritant to try some way to expiate his sins. Some way to deny himself, feeling that if he denied himself, God would like him better, God would accept him sooner. 
that kind of that kind of monkish monastic self-denial stuff that, that the real spiritual people have you know they go around in those robes and they look so pious and so plain and uh, and they don't want any riches and they want to live in deprivation they'll never marry and they live a humble and a simple life and we say isn't that wonderful they're so devoted they're so monkish they're so monastic they're so self-denying and the truth of the matter is they're so proud that they're trying to gain the favor of God through their own enterprise through their own self-denial Look what he says about that. You're messing with stuff that's going to perish anyway. And at the end of verse 23, he says, it has no value against fleshly indulgence. It doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. You can put all the rocks in your shoes you want. You can put all the needles in your waist you want. You can run around flagellating yourself on the back like people do. You can do like the guy in the Philippines every year who crucifies himself on Good Friday. You can do all of that stuff you want, all the self-denial, all the deprivation you want, and and that's not going to deal with your flesh. It isn't Christ plus philosophy, and it isn't Christ plus mysticism. It isn't Christ plus any of these things. Asceticism. Christ plus legalism? No. It's Christ plus what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And young people, sooner or later, the tale is told in your Christian life by the measure of your relationship to Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and you are complete in Him. And if there's an incompleteness in your life, it's directly related to the failure of your relationship with Christ to be everything that it ought to be, right? So let me encourage you, in the midst of all the junk you could collect, focus on your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which will do two things. It will drive you to the Word to get to know Him. It will drive you to your knees to commune with Him. The Christian life is reduced to very simply praying and reading the Word of God so that I live in communion with Christ, so that I become more like Christ in the richness of that relationship. I have all I need. I have all I need. Listen to a tape of a pastor. He told the most amazing story, and I'll close with this. He said he was conducting a series of meetings. His name is Joseph Carroll. Conducting a series of meetings in several churches in North and South Carolina. He was staying at the home of some close friends in Asheville, and he was traveling every night to wherever he was speaking that evening. He'd stay with his friends, and then he'd travel out to wherever he was going to speak. One night, he had to go all the way to Greenville, South Carolina, which is a many-hour drive. He didn't have a car, so some friends from Greenville, from the church, came all the way to Asheville to get him, drive him all the way down to Greenville to preach, and then all the way back to Asheville that night. When they arrived to pick him up, he said goodbye to the host family, told him he hoped to be back after midnight. He went down to Greenville and ministered in the church, stayed a while, enjoyed some fellowship, then got in the car and rode back for several hours all the way back to Asheville. It was quite a while after midnight when he got there. He approached the house. The porch light was on. He assumed his host would be prepared for his arrival because he had discussed the time of his return with him. As he got out of the car, he sent the driver away and said, It's no problem. I know they're here and they'll be waiting for me. He felt that tremendous bitter cold of the night. He said it was just a freezing cold night and it was raining. And he walked a long distance to the house. He reached the porch. He was already numb. By the time he got to the porch, he knocked on the door and nobody answered. And he knocked a little harder and nobody answered and harder and nobody answered. And he kept doing it and nobody answered. And finally, he was very, very cold. And so he went around the side of the house and stood in the rain and he hit on the kitchen window and the kitchen door. And still nobody answered. There was no response. He did everything he thought was reasonable to do to try to rouse somebody out. 
There was a neighboring house and he was a a little concerned. He thought, well, maybe I'll go to the neighboring house. But he was afraid to wake them in the middle of the night because if they didn't expect him, they might shoot him. So he decided that he'd walk down the road until he could find a public phone. It was dark, as dark as it was cold, he said, and he started down the road in the rain. He wasn't familiar with the area and he was walking for several miles. At one point, he said he slipped in the wet grass growing alongside the road and slid all the way down the bank into two feet of water. Now he was soaked and frozen, crawled back up to the road and walked further. Finally saw a blinking motel light. He awakened the motel manager, gracious enough to let him use the telephone. He, he was bedraggled and frozen in the worst of condition. He called his sleepy host and he said, I hate to disturb you, but I couldn't get anybody in the house to wake up. I'm several miles down the road at the motel. Could you come and get me? To which his host replied, my dear friend, don't you remember I gave you a key? It's in your overcoat pocket. He reached in his pocket, and there it was. You say, that's pretty silly, right? Pretty silly to be wandering all over everywhere trying to solve your problem when you have the key in your pocket, right? And the key to your spiritual life and to mine is that relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we want to cultivate our relationship with You. Well, we can get so distracted. We can collect an awful lot of stuff. Some of it isn't even bad, but it isn't what we need. What we need is the full eternal riches that are ours in Christ. I pray for every person here that they might pursue Christ to know Him better, to love Him more. Lord, may we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ better every day of our lives. For in Him indeed are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and our completeness is all bound up in Him. Lord, may our relationship to Christ be everything that You want it to be. May we pursue Christ like Paul who said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. That's our prayer, Lord, to know Christ more deeply than we do and find in Him all the treasures that we need. Thank You that You've made it available to us if we're faithful. We pray in His dear name. Amen.